0: Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to talk about exactly what we just sang a moment ago about running after Jesus. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Hebrew letter, chapter 12. Hebrews, chapter 12. <clears throat> and I'd like if you just remain with your Bibles open, because I will not uh, read everything that I may refer to. So if you haven't, it'll be easy to access. Hebrews, chapter 12. And I'm going to begin with the very first verse. Would you like to stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Wherefore, and that's speaking of the chapter preceding this chapter, and I'll explain that. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight... And the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradictions of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Shall we pray? Fathers, we sought your face today, and for the service tonight, we would ask that you would draw near to each one of us, and may we sit under the sound of your word as though we'd never heard it before, may we preach it as though we've never preached it before, and may the anointing of your spirit be upon both the pulpit and the pew, we are mindful, Lord, unless you come, all of our efforts will be in vain, and so we welcome you into our midst. May we come with an attitude that, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth, and we will walk in your light, and we'll praise you for it already. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This, I'm sure to you, is a rather familiar passage, but I want to reach across the Word to try to bring some clarity to it that I think will be pertinent to your life and mine. In the book of Romans, in the 8th chapter, in verse 24, there's an interesting phrase that says, we are saved by hope. Now that saved there does not mean we're born again or we become Christians. That's not the word, that's not the usage of that word. The word saved, we are saved by hope, means we are sustained and held steadfast on our Christian walk by hope. And if you read the Hebrew letter, chapter 6, it tells us that hope is the anchor of the soul. Now, when we're talking about being held steady, there's all kinds of things, and many of you know well, what I'm talking about, that jar our lives from time to time. And we need to be very sensitive that we are listening to the right voices and that we are following as we heard this evening the right person because hope that is not seen paul says is not hope or hope that is seen is not hope but if we hope for that we see not then we with patience wait for it now our hope is anchored in the future it is not in the present hope is always anchored in the future. In fact Paul says if in this life only we have hope we are of all men most miserable. Now having said that in chapter 11 that's what the word wherefore is pointing to we have what is commonly referred to as faith's hall of fame. And when you read in chapter 11 you read the various ones the old patriarchs of old through faith Abraham through faith Isaac through faith Jacob and through faith Moses etc 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 and all the feats that they endured through faith I can tell you it was hope that was the secret of Abraham's faith When you study the life of Abraham he owned nothing tangible in this world he roamed like a nomad in the land because it said he looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is god it was something projected in the future it was his hope moses through faith moses endured how did he endure you know moses of course was really set up in egypt for some 40 years until god called him out of there and it was there that he was going to have to lead the children of Israel out. And for another 40 years, he wandered around with those children of Israel. And he was subject and beset by jealousy and anger and criticism of the worst kind, the carping critics of those children. It was more than I probably could have ever stood. But it said of Moses, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. If you read the Apostle Paul, he took anchorage in the fact that there was laid up for him a crown of righteousness. And the hope of that reality enabled him to weather all the storms that he suffered and endured all the suffering, and he was able to keep his faith until the day of his coronation, recorded in 2 Timothy. Even in the verses that I read in your hearing, Jesus, who endured, His endurance was taxed beyond our measure. It said of Him, He suffered at the hands of His friends as well as His foes because He endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. I guess if we could go on and on and on, but the thing that sustained them in their walk with God was the hope that lies beyond I think sometimes we want God to do everything in the immediate but I can tell you we are at the short end of something getting bigger and better all the time and God has it for us if we will be faithful and so consequently when we come to the 12th chapter of Hebrew the writer gives us an injunction that we are to run with patience the race that is set before us and we are to run it to the finish And along with the injunction, he gives us two incentives why we must run this uh, race. Number one, the legacy that was behind us. That's those cloud of witnesses that Hebrew letter 11 uh, reveals to us. And he tells us to consider just in case you have a tendency to grow weary and faint in your mind, you need to consider this great cloud of witness of whom we are encompassed by. For they were those of whom the world was not worthy. They faced scourgings, imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were slain with a sword. They were uh, wandered in sheepskin, goatskins, lived in caves, destitute. On and on and on it goes. And yet God's mercy and might were able to run the race with an unalterable purpose and an unalterable patience. Now, he says, consider them. That's the incentive. Consider them because, he says, you have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. In other words, whether we like it or not, he says, these sealed their testimony with their own blood. If you ever have a tendency to grow weary in well-doing or grow weary and want to faint, he said, remember, you've got resources you have not yet expended you still have blood that you can shed. That doesn't sound like shouting grounds. But I can tell you that is exactly how he is calling us if we're going to endure unto the end. But the other incentive is not only the legacy that is behind us, is looking unto Jesus who is the Lord that is ever present with us, that is urging us on. The Lord says, looking unto Jesus. Don't look any, any other place. Don't get your eyes in the wrong areas and the wrong places. You better keep them focused upon the Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now that's introductory, I suppose, but I want you to note two or three things. I want you to note this look of faith. And then I want you to notice there is liberty that comes through this faith. And then there is life that ensues through faith. The look of faith. I have always uh, enjoyed reading the Second World War and all the skirmishes and all the battles that went on and those great men and leaders of the military on our side, of course, and all that was taking place. Well, there's a little story that comes up out of that. During the war, there was a battle raging in one area in which the heated battle went on for days and nights. It seemed as though it was never going to end, and by now the battleground was strewn with wounded and dead soldiers on both sides. All of a sudden, there came a law in the battle, and they decided they wanted to clean up the battleground. But they didn't have real hospitals. They just had makeshift hospitals to tend to the wounded. And the doctors were mere medics, and oftentimes didn't have the tools and things. They needed to care for the wounded. And so they made a decision, we'll go out and we'll pick out the wounded. But he says, we're only going to pick the wounded that we think we can save. If you come upon a soldier so terribly wounded, you think it's no hope, pass him by, leave him alone. As they went out to pick up the wounded, a medic went alongside and made the decision whether to bring them in or not. And he walked up and there was a young soldier lying more dead than he was alive. And the story was told that he was just about ready to shake his head and say, leave him behind. And that young lad rolled his head over and his eyes came in contact with a very pathetic look with the eyes of the medic and the medic could not pass him by. And he asked him to pick him up and bring him in and he survived his wounds. It's an interesting story and it's much more detailed than that, but I want you to note, if ever there was a look of life, it was in that young man's eyes. Life in a look you remember over in the old testament whenever moses was leading the children in the wilderness and the serpents began to bite them poisonous serpents and they were dying like flies and moses didn't know what to do about it he saw his people dying and he petitioned the lord as he often did and god said lift up a brazen serpent on a pole and everyone that looks at that serpent will be healed They bring that out of the Old Testament in John chapter 3. And John says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This, of course, he was speaking of Jesus when in John 12 he says, for this cause I came into this hour. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. This spoke he of the death that he should die. The good news is, folks, if we look to Jesus, if we look to the cross... If we look to the suffering Savior, we can find life. Our look must be a look of faith. All faith focuses on Christ, nowhere else. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. When he came into the world prior to his leaving, just a few hours before he left, when Philip asked him to show him the Father, he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he looked at him and said, I am the way, I am the truth and I am the life without the way there's no going without the truth there is no knowing without the life there is no living and Jesus said I am and all of that as a prophet he brought God down to man as a priest he lifts man up to God he's the author and the perfecter of our faith and when we look to Jesus Christ I can tell you we see the whole range of our faith in him he is the first cause he's the fixed center he's the final conclusion of all faith in creation when God made man created him out of the red earth out of the dust of the ground God endowed man with a portion of his faith Now, whatever man lost in the garden in the fall, and I can tell you he lost a great deal. He never lost his capacity to believe. He maintained his capacity to believe. It's called the gift of faith. It's called an inerrant faith. You say, how do I know that? Because the one condition for salvation is the condition of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And with this faith, it gives us power to appropriate the qualities of his character and consequently they become forces and blessings in our own life. And that's why he admonishes us have faith, the faith of God. Remember, Paul says, I live by the faith of God that loved me and gave himself for me. The faith of God. I can tell you there's no other way except the look of faith the look of faith but i also want you to note the liberty through faith because when you look to jesus you cannot see jesus without seeing the cross and you cannot see the cross without recognizing the liberty that the cross has provided for me and you We look unto Jesus, see Him who endured the cross. He not only endured its pain, He suffered its shame, and He did it for each one of us this evening. Must never speak of salvation or of holiness except in relationship to the cross. And I say that because I can tell you there are many who are not interested in a blood-bought religion. And by the way, any creed or any teaching that doesn't have a scarlet thread running through it is as phony as a dollar bill without silk. It is by the blood and that alone. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission. But now we've reached the day where we don't want to mention anything about the blood. After all, preacher, that's a militant way of thinking. In fact, you know and I know many churches have done away with some of the hymns such as Onward Christian Soldier because they think it's too militant. Well, let me tell you, we are the militant church in this world. We are in a battle in this world. One of these days when we're translated into the next world, we'll move from militancy into the triumphant church. And we still have the battles to fight in this world. Do you remember over in Matthew 16, when Jesus, speaking to his disciples, he told them they had to go to Jerusalem. He was going to suffer many things of the scribes and the elders and the chief priests and he was going to die, but he said, after I'm killed, he said, I'm going to be raised the third day. Simon Peter, listening on, looked at him, and uh, he didn't like that, and he said simply, be it far from you, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter was willing to accept a Messiah without suffering and without death, and Jesus knew that. And Jesus saw that it savored a brimstone. He said, Peter, you savor us not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. And he looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. It was for this cause, he says, I came into the world. I came on purpose for the cross. The cross did not just happen to me. That's why I came. You know God, as God, cannot save man. And man, as man, cannot save man because man couldn't produce a Savior. God, as God, could not save man because man sinned and man had to die. So God became man in Christ to die to destroy the works of Satan in your heart and mind. There's no other way. You remember it's stated in Hebrews 9, I believe it is. It's appointed unto man once to die after that judgment Jesus didn't die because he was a man he reversed it he became a man in order that he could die and it was through death he destroyed him that had the power of death that is the devil himself the purpose of his passion we have this movie I've not seen it but you've seen it many of you this passion the passion the passion week were Christ hung on the cross from Monday to Sunday. You remember that whole week is what we call the Passion Week where Friday he was crucified, which would have been the greatest tragedy the world ever seen, except for Sunday, which became the greatest victory the world has ever seen ever since. But his whole passion was to pardon and to purify his people. That's why he went to the cross. It tells us in Hebrews 13, Jesus also That he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate i can tell you there is no solution to the sin problem apart from the look of jesus you cannot outrun the shadows of your yesterdays you cannot blot out the footprints of the past and you cannot erase the history that you've already made and i don't care you can go to the universities and get all the degrees behind your name that you want to You can make all the laws, but you cannot legislate sin out of your heart. You can't wash sin out with the waters of the seven seas. You cannot freeze it out with the polar caps. You can't shake it out with an earthquake. You can't clean it out or burn it out with a volcano. You cannot get rid of your sin any other way except through the blood, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I'm glad I come to grips with that a long time ago. And I can tell you, when you meet Him, you cannot unmeet Him. When you have seen Him, you cannot unsee Him. He will always be, whether you and I will be or not. But I mentioned to you, there's not only the look of faith and the liberty we receive through faith, freedom from our sin, he, we enthrone Him, He emancipates us, There is life through faith. Could I read some more scripture? If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Let me read beginning with verse 5 on down through verse 10. For he says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure." but he chastens us for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. It's a powerful passage. And I want to share out of it just a few moments. Every true, and I'm finding myself emphasizing that more all the time. I'm a little afraid that we've learned the language of the church and we've learned how to talk it and all without really knowing the relationship. We're willing to adhere to some of the principles without accepting the person of Christ. That's a very frightening thing. And I, uh, I've been trying in recent days in some of my meetings be very, I, I guess, elementary. Is that, would that be the word? Uh, when I speak to the congregation because I'm discovering not everybody understands the gospel message. I'm discovering not everybody has truly been born again. We major on the doctrine of entire sanctification, but I'm not so sure some are even where that begins. And so I I do not want to pass them by. Now, it's important to know that because there are new people coming into our church. There's little babies being born in our church. And and for some reason, we get the idea, well, they all understand that. That's just not true. In fact, a son of of a father who has a PhD still has to have his ABCs. And I was 15 years of age before I ever knew I needed to be born again. I'm just thankful the pastor stood and told me I must be born again. And so I found Christ as my Savior. And after we come to know Christ as our Savior, not merely having an experience of uh, a trip at the altar, it has to be an experience with God. That's another thing perhaps we ought to be careful about. Well, I've been to that altar. That's incidental. Did you meet Jesus? Is He a living reality in your life? And if he isn't, you have nothing of which to brag or certainly nothing in which to witness. And I have talked to many of them who said, I prayed, I prayed, but I've never really had the witness. I'll tell you, when he comes, you know he's there. There's no question about it. And consequently, I'm saying every truly child of God will naturally experience the chastening of the Lord because three things is obvious in this passage. He chastens his sons, number one, as a token of his love. He loves us. That's why he chastens us. Secondly, as proof of our sonship. What son is he that he chasteneth not? And finally, he does it for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. You know, I would caution anyone to beware, as a child of God, of saying, "If you walk with Jesus very long, that He's never bothered you about being holy, or about this work of entire sanctification." When I hear people tell me that, I have to come back to this passage. If you were to say to me, well, preacher, I've been walking with God a long time and He's never spoken to me about becoming a partaker of His holiness, I would say to you, beware, because number one, it reflects adversely on the truthfulness of God's Word. Because He has already said, if you're a son, He's chastened you already for the purpose of being a partaker. And if you say you never have been bothered with it, you're questioning the divine authority of God. But even more than that, if you make that kind of a statement, it casts tremendous suspicion on your legitimacy. Let me read it. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you, In the King James, use a rash word, then are you bastards or illegitimate? You are not sons at all. And I'm quite concerned these days when we sort of lay this message of a holy heart and a righteous life as though it's some kind of an addendum or some kind of a take it or leave it or something optional. It's absolutely essential. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he shed his blood also that he might sanctify the people. And for some reason we have almost demeaned the blood and I'm not so sure it's not an affront against the love of God. To make such a statement God being holy cannot but require and provide for his creatures to be holy as he which has called you is holy so be ye holy in the study of comparative religions men always tend to become like the gods they serve and if you're going to serve a holy God, some things must be held in common. That's what communion is all about. That's what fellowship is all about. And by the way, if we tend to become like the gods we serve, doesn't that speak with clarity about those who are going around be hitting and killing and burning in cages under the guise of their religion? Doesn't that speak something about the kind of God they serve they call Allah? I remember many years ago, whenever the Iranians had our hostages, I think it was back in Jimmy Carter's administration. And I was working one day with the great Dr. Dennis Kinlaw. And if you remember back in those times, they were getting with the the ambassadors and the heads of state, and they get together and they sit down and try to figure out how they could get those hostages released, what they required and what was necessary, and they thought they had it all taken care of, and when it came time to do it, all of a sudden the Khomeini's would change their mind and wouldn't let them go. That didn't happen just once in a while. It happened a number of times. They got it all ready. And finally, Dr. Kinlaw said he, was, he had been praying about this. And he himself, who was a great Hebrew scholar, he said, I understand that. He said, why? I said, why did they do that? He said, they served their God called Ali. And he, sees, he says, see, Ali has no standard. Ali can do anything he wants to at any time he wants to do it. And he can change his mind at any given moment. He said, we serve a holy God who always acts consistent with his nature. He is always holy. That is his standard. And he'll never deviate from that standard. Now, it's important for me to know that. Because if he who has called me is holy and he said, I want you to be holy, he will not deviate from that standard. You may reject it. You may say, I'm not interested in it. You do that at your peril but that's what God's command for you and me to be. Why is that? Uh, Holiness cannot fellowship with sin. I can tell you light is mutually exclusive with darkness. Love cannot abide hate. His sovereignty will not tolerate rebellion. And if we're not careful, folks, we've almost dragged God down to where we can handle him. We've made him our God. If you ever have a tendency to do that, go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Walk in the temple where Isaiah did, who, by the way, was a great prophet for many years prior, preceding that. And he said, "Let's all God high and lifted up. And his train filled the, t- the temple. And he said, The smoke began to curl, and the seraphims began to cry out, Holy, holy, holy. I think it was to confirm the triune Godhead. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And he said, All of a sudden, I saw myself, and I fell at his feet as dead. And then God sent one of the seraphims with the tongs to take the hot coals from off the altar to purge his tongue, and he was clean. Who shall I send? Here am I, Lord. Send me. By the way, it's not only necessary to fellowship with God to live holy. It's necessary in order to satisfy the deepest cravings of your heart if you love God. You know, I think sometimes we talk about holiness like it's some kind of bad cough medicine we have to take over. Oh, this is the sweetest thing that ever happened to me. And one of the most beautiful words in my vocabulary that I have lived with for all these years is the word sanctification. It is almost repulsive to people today. Oh, well, they just don't understand that. I don't understand why we say that. I don't understand. We got dictionaries all around the country. And I'd buy one for you if you don't understand it. I get medicine. I haven't the slightest idea what those words are. But I take it. And so do you. You don't ever say, no man, I don't understand that stuff. I'm not going to take that. No, you don't. But when it comes to God and holiness, we think for some reason, well, I don't understand it, so I'm going to let my head outstrip my heart. (laughs) therefore in verse 14 he admonishes us follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord oh by the way uh, without it you won't want to see him let me say it loud and clear without a holy heart you won't want to see God You'll do like they did in Revelation. Cry for the mountains, the rocks to fall. Hide me from his face. He is our file leader. Jesus. That's what he says he is. Do you remember those of you who read history when it used to be? The old pioneers of this country used to come in and blaze blaze trails through the thick forest so the families could come in, build their settlements. I can tell you, humanity had lost its way one day. And Jesus came and blazed a way through our moral forest. And he went to the cross and he opened the highway of holiness for you and me. No unclean thing shall pass upon it. And he hung a light out on Calvary's cross and there it shines and burns forever. And that's why he admonishes us to look to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith his bodily presence as you know is in heaven with the father they saw him ascend back there on the day following the day of his resurrection some days later they they witnessed his ascending back to the father but his spiritual presence resides in the hearts of his saints by way of the holy spirit you know when you read john's writings John is the apostle of love, and obviously you could expect him to place great emphasis on love. Love, agape. Holy love. James, you read his epistle, and he places great emphasis on works. But Hebrew places emphasis on faith. That's why we have the faith chapter in chapter 11, the chapter of faith. Faith faith the substance of things hoped for the evidences of things not seen when you go to the 6th verse of chapter 11 it says without faith it's impossible to please God for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a reward of them that diligently seek him every other attribute of God is dependent on faith and through faith and patience that we inherit the promises of God faith And patience. Now remember the statement he said without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know, I can't get over in my own study of the life of Christ how often he speaks of being pleasing to the Father. I do always those things that please him. Romans said he pleased not himself. And then I've not gotten over how the Father in turn, as I mentioned last evening, keeps saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If without faith it's impossible to please Him, I want you to know the measure of our faith in Him is the measure of His pleasure in us. I've watched that carefully. The measure of my faith in God is the measure of His pleasure in me. Do you believe Him? I'm not talking about mere intellectual assent. I mean, will you give your whole being in total surrender to Him? If we walk by faith, remember hope is anchored in the future. That's why he says faith is the substance of things hoped for, as well as evidence of things not seen. If we run the race with faith and patience, the author of our faith will perfect it one day, and when he does, all this faith will turn to sight, and we will behold what we have believed in. What it's going to be like? I only know this. I will never be able to behold in sight what I believe now in this body. I'm going to have to have a new body. I would blow up with joy if I would see him now. That's why he said, you can't see me of the father. Jesus came to the world and you could see him because he was veiled in the flesh. And so we could see him. That's why you could say, when you see me, you've seen the Father. But do you remember a couple of times that flesh gave us a glimpse of that glory? Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, they got a glimpse of the effulgence of God? So much so that, I know why Peter said it, so much so Peter said, oh man, let's just build three tabernacles now and stay right here. He got a glimpse of the glory that's waiting you and me. But you know and I know they had to come down off of the glory of the mountain into the gloom of the valley where they had to deal with a little demon-possessed boy. We are saved by hope because we are looking. And when I use that word looking, it's a, it's a, very, it's a very strong word, looking, and focused not on the things of time but the things that are eternal. We do not look out. We do not look down. We do not look away. We look up. And we do not take a glance. We set our spiritual gaze on Jesus. In fact, looking to Jesus, we will not only prove His redemptive will here on this earth, it will be then we will receive His rewarding will in eternity. I want to receive that will. I'm making every plans to receive the will. Seeing that we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him Endured the cross, despising the shame. If you ever thought for one moment the cross was something easy for Jesus to face, you're not reading this carefully. There's only one way he could endure the cross and despise the shame. And it was stated the joy that was set before him. What is the joy that was set before him? Any mother that's ever given birth to a child knows the joy. It's the joy of receiving the child. It's the joy of all those months of travail and pain and suffering. The child. And one of these days, God's going to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And that's what he's enjoying. The joy that was set before him. I want to be faithful. I uh, have never dealt with this passage. What I'm dealing with this week, I'm dealing with for the first time because it speaks to my own heart. And it would be a whole lot easier for me and a whole lot more flowing if I just go pull something out and give that I've been very used to, but I haven't been. But I do believe that God has confirmed that I've obeyed him in the service tonight. Now I'm going to ask you a question. I know how pastors do. I know how evangelists do. We have to sit and wrestle with God a lot of these things. I sat and was a number of days now, even ready for the weekend, while I was in meetings elsewhere. And I can tell you the burden get, got so heavy at times I had to walk away. I have faithfully conveyed God's will. And the good news is when a pastor, preacher, evangelist, whoever, bears the burden and conveys the message and proclaims the truth. That burden shifts. It shifts from the pulpit to the pew. We have experienced it. Now you have to deal with it. Not being unkind. That's just the way it is. That's that's truth. Got to do something with it. You can reject it. You can call it light and walk in it and Draw closer to God, or it may be that God's saying to you, I need to talk to you about some things. We have an altar. And I think you ought to become, when you come to an altar, I think there are times you ought to come with great deliberation and determination, forgetting about everybody else. If God draws you, okay, I'm going to come. I have something to talk to him. And he has something to say to me. You know it when that happens. I'm going to ask if we can have those who's going to lead us in a song. Would, would you come quickly? And I'd like for you in the meantime to stand with me. The rest of you, please. And I'm going to ask you to be very open to God tonight. Father. In spite of the weak or inadequate vessel that conveys your word we give great credence to the Holy Spirit who will apply truth to our hearts we look on at the world and all that's taken place we don't think it's time now for a lot of frivolity we believe it's a very serious moment of our world, our nation our lives And Lord, there are those here tonight who have been faithful across many, many years of serving you, but even the best of us need to allow you to scrutinize our hearts and search us. As the psalmist said, see if there be anything grievous in us. See if our attitudes are right or see if we carry an envious spirit or a grudge or a heart spirit. For people not only hear what we say, see what we do. They sense who we are. And we believe the Holy Spirit has been faithful. And Jesus, if there is a need here tonight, may without any hesitancy, and with deliberation, not wrestling, just saying, yes, God, I want to obey you. We will come. And kneel at this altar and seek your face. As they sing, you say, i like to obey God. i like to come. I feel like he's calling me. I don't want you to come if you don't feel that. But if you feel that, I want you to come as we sing this invitational number.